destroyed. And he was writing just before it happened to warn what God was going to do and why he was going to do it. He says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, proclaim this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, you men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. So Jeremiah is standing in the temple. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner and the fatherless, the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land I gave of old to your fathers forever. But behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods you haven't known, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, We are delivered! Only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my main dweller first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when you, I called you, did not answer. Therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name, and in which you trust, and the place I gave to you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. I will cast you out of my sight, as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. See what it's saying? When Israel first moved to the promised land, the tabernacle, which is the mobile temple, was at a place called Shiloh. But because of the sin of the people, God destroyed that place. And Jeremiah is saying to the people of his day, Don't think just because you have the temple of the Lord, you will escape judgment. You go and do all kinds of evil things and you come to the temple and you think you'll be saved because you do. No way. Ceremonial religion does not make up for disobedience to God's word. God says, what I want is a heart that follows me, not play acting. If you do not repent, I will come, I will destroy you and your place. And God did. Now, Jesus applies these words of Jeremiah to the temple of his day. By calling it a den of robbers, he's comparing it to Jeremiah's temple. And implying that, like Jeremiah's temple, it will be destroyed. And so the driving out of those who bought and sold, uh, overthrowing the temples of the money changers and, and, and uh, pigeon sellers, and that was just... That's an enacted warning of the judgment that was to come. See how provocative it is? It's very strong stuff. Furthermore, what Jesus did in the temple also pointed forward to the Messianic age. In the Old Testament, the time of the Bible, time, part of the Bible written before Jesus, God had promised that the Son of David, God's promised king, the Messiah, would reign. And the last verse of the book of the prophet Zechariah talks about that age and says, And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. And so when Jesus comes in and kicks out the traitors, not only is he saying the judgment is coming, and he's saying, look, the new age is about to arrive. The king is about to come and take up his throne. So here Jesus is making these strong statements. And doing these provocative things in the temple. 
On the other hand, he is also doing compassionate miracles in the temple. Verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Now, the blind and the lame would not have been in the temple to worship. They would have been in the temple to beg. Leviticus 21 verse 18 says, For no one who has a blemish shall draw near a man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long. The reasons for that we, we, uh, we uh, discussed when we talked about it when we did Leviticus last year. Right, if you can't remember, come and talk to me about it. But the prophet Isaiah prophesies that one day God would come to save his people. And even the excluded ones would be healed and included. Listen to Isaiah 34. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. And then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the layman shall leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute sing for joy. See, Jesus had brought this healing right into the temple courts. No longer was He doing it just up in the Ulu places, Galilee and those. This is the temple itself. Surely the religious leaders of Israel would see and believe. Surely they would say, God has come to save His people. But no. Listen to their response in verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things He did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. They were angry. It wasn't just because of the healings, the wonderful things he did on their territory. There's also the response of the children. They were crying out of the temple. The same things that the pilgrims had, from Jerusalem had been crying when, when Jesus entered. They were saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! And we saw last week that the word Hosanna means, save us! And the son of David is God's promised king. David was the great king in the Old Testament. And God had promised him that, that uh, he would always have a descendant on the throne. So the great Messiah that was to come, the great saviour, the great king was to come, would have been a descendant, a son of David. And the kids in the temple are calling to Jesus, Hey, save us Jesus! You are the son of David! You are the promised king! In fact, Psalm 118, where this comes from, speaks of what the one who comes in the name of the Lord being blessed from the temple it says save us that's, the word means Hosanna that's the Hosanna word save us we pray O Lord notice it's, it's, it's uh, Psalm 118 is addressing God Yahweh the God of Israel save us we pray O Lord we pray give us success blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord we bless you from the house of the Lord and that's exactly what's happening here from the temple, from the house of God, the children were blessing Jesus and saying, Hosanna! Not just to Yahweh, to God, to the son of David, Jesus. And unbeknownst to them, these children were actually fulfilling prophecy. But the chief priests and the scribes were very angry. They say to him, verse 21, uh, sorry, chapter 21, verse 16, they say, Do you hear what these are saying? Think, Jesus, your underage followers are getting too enthusiastic. 
They're making claims for you that are over the top. They are calling you the son of David, the king. They're just kids. Please call them off. Calm them down. For what they're saying is very dangerous. Even seditious. They are too young to be involved in all this stuff. Do they realize? Do you realize what they're doing? And Jesus in reply drops another bombshell. He says to them, Yes. Have you not read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. Now this comes from the Old Test, the, uh, the Greek version of Psalm chapter 8 verse 2. Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have ordained praise. Because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now there were three things there, notice. That is, God was at work ordaining praise. He was the one doing it. So the chief priests and the teachers of the law are complaining, they are complaining about God. Secondly, who is being praised in Psalm 8? Well, God is. And yet Jesus is taking that passage and applying it to himself. And thirdly, God was doing it to silence his enemies. His foes. And Well, Jesus is placing himself in the position of God and the children as the kids from whom God has ordained praise. Who are the enemies? It must be the teachers of the law and the chief priests, eh? We don't know how they responded, but they were... Probably a bit stunned. What is this man saying? Now having done all those things in the temple, Jesus turns his back on the religious leaders and he walks away. Verse 17. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Bethany was a little town about three kilometers east of Jerusalem, on the other side of the Mount of Olives. Jerusalem would have been pretty full at that time of year. Many people stayed outside. Many people were coming into the city as pilgrims for the, uh, for the Passover. So all the hotels would be full. They've got to stay in the, you know, the outskirts like PJs, things like that. Right? So Jesus had friends at Bethany. And so he stayed with them. And Jesus traveled from Bethany back to Jerusalem when he came upon a fig tree. And the next few verses we read about Jesus cursing the fig tree. Now, some people felt a bit distressed about this passage. They think that Jesus is acting in temper and destroys this poor tree for no apparent reason. Right? But that's not the case. Because this, this fig tree is a sign. It's something that speaks to us. About the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem that is to come. Now, there's a reason for this. It's not just randomly cursing fig trees. Right? Let's read about it. Verses 18 to 19. In the morning, as Jesus was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Now, leaves on the fig tree are meant to be a sign of fruit. But when Jesus went, got, went to get the fruit, there's none there. And because this tree bore no fruit, he says, look, may no fruit ever come from you again. And that's what happened. At once, that is within 24 hours, the fig tree withered. Now, the withering of a fig tree in the Old Testament is a sign of judgment. 
when God is blessing his people, right, the picture of blessing, you know, what is what is the picture? What you know? What, what does blessing look like? Well, in the Old Testament, a picture of blessing is everyone sitting under his fig tree. See, so the high point of Israel's history, when Solomon was king, the Bible says, and Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Now that's meant to be like really good. Okay, that's the good life. You sit under your fig tree, and. When the prophet Zechariah looks forward to the blessing at the end, he says, In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his name, but come under his vine and under his fig tree. So, a picture of blessing. But when the prophets want to talk about judgment, well, you've got fig trees there as well. In Isaiah 34, all the hosts of heaven shall rot away, the skies roll up like a scroll, all the hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from a fig tree. Jeremiah chapter 8, when I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree, even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Joel chapter 1, the vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of men. And then the uh, destruction of Habakkuk. Though the fig tree shall not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vine, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no flock food, the flock be cut off from the fold, there be no home in the stalls, yet Habakkuk says, I will rejoice in the Lord. See, withered fig trees, a sign that God's blessing is not there anymore, a sign that God's judgment is coming. So when Jesus causes this wig tree, wig tree this fig tree, right, to wither, Wig trees would be quite useful, wouldn't they? Um, when Jesus calls this, this fig tree to wither, that's, that's a sign of judgment. But who is the judgment against? Well, in the Old Testament, it was Israel, wasn't it? And it's the same here. Look at the context. Jesus has just done all these judgment things in, in the temple. And the temple and her authorities and her leaders, they were about to reject Christ. The leaders of Israel did not bring forth the fruit of repentance that John the Baptist had, had called them to and called them to at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. And God would bring them to judgment. God was going to bring them to account for rejecting Jesus. He would bring condemnation on them. He would destroy Jerusalem and the temple just like he did before in Jeremiah's time. And the cursing of the fig tree is a sign, a warning, a shadow of the judgment to come. Now, the disciples seem, well, at first sight, they seem to have missed the point about the fig tree. Instead, they're really impressed. Verse 20, they say, When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? Now, that's a little bit strange, isn't it? Because Jesus had done so many greater things than that in their presence. I mean, He's here, just healed the lame and the blind. He's calmed the storm, he's even raised the dead. Withering a fig tree, that's not a terribly big deal in comparison, is it? But why are they so, so what, are they, what are we missing here? Well, notice, they weren't so much impressed that it withered, they were surprised how quickly it happened. They were surprised that it happened now. So if the withering fig tree is a sign of God's judgment, then what's God's judgment going to come now? Oh, maybe they did understand. But look at Jesus' answer in verse 21. 
Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Now that's pretty, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? If you have faith and you do not doubt, you will do not only what has been done to the fig tree. That is, you will not only bring in the, the prefiguring of God's judgment, but if you say to the mountain, be taken and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Now, mountains being thrown into the sea, that's a big picture of judgment. Remember at creation, God separated the waters from the dry land. For a mountain to be thrown into the sea, that's the opposite. It's the undoing of creation. It's the disaster that speaks of the end of the world. Day of God's universal judgment. In Psalm 46, when the, when the psalmist is trying to paint the worst disaster imaginable, that, that actually ends up being a picture of the final judgment, what does he say? He says, God is our strength and refuge, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, the mountains tremble at its swelling. That's, that's faith in the midst of chaos. God's people, he says, will not fear, even though the earth gives way or changes, and the mountains themselves, the solid, unmovable mountains, shake and tremble and fall into the sea. The end of creation. And this is confirmed, this understanding is confirmed, because it's also picked up later in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 8, verse 8, it says that the... So, yeah, the second angel blew his trumpet, something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. Here's a picture of judgment. So what's Jesus saying here? He says, if you have faith, not doubt, not only will you do what's been done to the fig tree, but if you say to the mountain, be cast into the sea, it will happen. That is, you will not only bring in the first fruits of the final judgment, you will bring in the judgment itself. It will happen. But the condition is that you have faith and do not doubt or waver. Now, how was the judgment brought in? There was a judgment that happened when the temple was destroyed 40 years later. But that's not the first or the final judgment that was brought in. The first judgment was brought in by the death of Jesus. Because remember, when Jesus died, he experienced the judgment of God for our sin. He, he bore the, the anger of God, the heat of God's anger in our place. In one sense, the, the cross, the, the Good Friday, with the, 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 his death, that was the great day of disaster. What the Old Testament calls the day of the Lord. The day when God punished human sin. So the day of judgment was first and foremost in him. And you know what? That happened within one week of this incident. The fig tree was a sign of the judgment now. But the final judgment is still to come. When all those whose sins are not forgiven on the cross will receive the punishment for sins themselves. And that will be a great day of disaster. When day God punishes human sin. A day of judgment for all the world. When God winds up history. 
So the day of judgment is also still to come. Now, when the day of judgment first came in, who brought it in? Was it the disciples? No, they fell away, didn't they? It was Jesus himself. Who had perfect faith? Who believed without doubt? Only Jesus. And he was the one who brought in the kingdom. Yet, even when Jesus prayed in faith, without doubt, without wavering, it didn't mean that he got everything he wanted in every sense. In the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night before he died, he pleaded with the Father. He said, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, he said, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. This cup is, is the cross, his suffering. He's taking God's judgment for us. He's, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then he comes back and he says again for a second time, he went away and prayed, Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Now, did Jesus get what he asked for in faith? At first you think no. And then you think yes. No, at one level he didn't because, well, the cup didn't pass from him. He, he drank the bitter cup to the end. He, he received the cup of God's wrath. And yet he actually did receive what he asked for in faith, didn't he? Your will be done. And so he drank the cup. He experienced the wrath. He brought in the judgment. And the mountain was metaphorically thrown into the sea as God poured out his punishment on him. Jesus told his disciples to pray, Your kingdom come. This was especially appropriate before the kingdom was inaugurated in the death and resurrection of Jesus. He wanted his followers to pray for the coming of the kingdom, even though that meant judgment on him. And it's also still appropriate today to pray for the coming of the kingdom, even though the kingdom is come and Jesus is king, because the kingdom has not yet come in its fullness. That's why we need to pray for the coming of the kingdom. To pray for the mountains to be thrown into the sea, for God to bring in the end, for the day of judgment. And we know that it is God's will because He's told us in His plan. And so we can pray with faith. And Jesus said, whatever you ask in faith, you will receive. Ask in prayer, you will receive, if you have faith. And so the main thing that Jesus wants us to pray for here is praying for the kingdom. But, his words are not limited to the kingdom, are they? For he says, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Whatever. Now, some people have suggested that this is a blank check. Right? We can get anything we want if we just suck ourselves to believe it will happen. The problem with that is, if I want a sunny day, and Melissa wants rain, we've got a problem, haven't we? And both of us believe it's going to happen. Other people say, no, no, this is just for the apostles. They were given the authority to do amazing things. We read about them in the book of Acts, but it's not for us today. 
Well, I don't think we need to take either of those options if we let Scripture interpret Scripture. Because the same Matthew who recorded these words of Jesus also records the words of the same Jesus in the garden as we've, as we've just seen. And praying with faith there did not mean psyching himself to believe the cross wouldn't happen. Because at, at one level at least he didn't want it to. What it did mean was trusting his heavenly father. Of saying, yeah, this is what I want, but in the end, your will be done. And if, I pray, if our prayer is like that, if we have faith like Jesus, faith to be willing to accept God's will and to ask for it, then we will receive what, what we ask. And like he did in Jesus, God will do his will, he will accomplish his purpose, he will glorify himself in us. See, that's why we have other passages, like 1 John 5.14, where he also talks about the condition, says, yeah, but he doesn't use the word faith, he says asking according to God's will. He says, this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and we know that he hears and we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. We know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. See, John's not saying something different from Jesus. He's saying the same thing in a different way. The prayer of faith, praying not doubting, is the same thing as praying according to God's will. The prayer of faith is a trusting prayer. The prayer of Jesus. Nevertheless, not my will but your will be done. <coughs> okay. Looking back on the passage as a whole, let's try and summarize what do we learn from this passage. The first thing I can well, tell you is a wrong application. Okay? What's the wrong application to get from this passage? The wrong application is because of the, what Jesus did in the temple then we cannot do any commercial transactions in the church buildings or church grounds. Right? means we've got to close our bookshop. Don't tell Jessica. Now, the reason it's wrong, why is the reason wrong? It's because the church building is not the present day equivalent of the temple, is it? That is, the temple was where God's presence dwelt in Old Testament times. It's a place you can go and meet God. It's a place where people were meant to come from all over the world to meet God. But, but the temple is no more. Because the temple was something that pointed forward actually to Jesus. He is the true temple. He is the place where we meet God. And in a secondary way, all those who are in Him are part of His temple. And when we meet together, God is with us by His Spirit. And so corporately, we, together, are the temple of the living God. And individually, God's Spirit dwells in all those who belong to Jesus, and so our bodies are temples. See, God doesn't live in buildings. He lives among His people. Now, that was easy for us to remember, all those of you who were here at the time, when we used to meet in the club across the road. Do you remember those of some of you who used to meet in the club? Yeah, I don't know you remember that. Now, nobody ever thought that God lived in the card room of the Slango Club, right, and once a week we'd go and visit Him there. Now that we're here, we mustn't make that terrible mistake either, mustn't we? Jesus is the temple. 
And when we gather together, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So, does this have implications for our gathering? Well, oh yes, it does. For one thing, God wants outsiders to come in and be saved, just like He wanted the Gentiles to come in and pray the cause of the Gentiles. And we need to make sure that we welcome unbelievers in, enable them to hear the gospel among us, look out for them, to cater for them. Furthermore, we mustn't regard the gathering of God's people as an, as an avenue for monetary gain. But the Apostle Peter writes this about church leaders. He says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not on the compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain. In 1 Timothy 6 verse 5, Paul warns about false teachers who imagine that godliness is a, is a means of gain. So church is not a business. We're not meant to be in it to make money. I don't use religion to build a business empire as you sometimes see and God will not tolerate corruption among the leaders of his people that's true secondly we've seen that ceremonial religion is no substitute for obedience to God's word remember Jeremiah in that passage where the den of robbers first came from they had the temple they had the ceremonies they had all the outward things but they refused to obey God's word the rest of the time and they thought the temple would keep them safe. And that was the attitude that Jesus was condemning in the temple authorities of his day. They rejected him and trusted in buildings and ceremonies. And God would bring judgment on them. Because outward religion is no substitute for trusting Jesus and obeying God's word. Come to church all you like Participate all you like, go through all the rituals you like, and none of that will save you if you do not trust in Jesus. God does not want just religion on the outside. He wants people who believe in His Son and obey His Word. Thirdly, recognize who Jesus is and treat Him properly. I mean, that's the main point, really, of the passage. Jesus is King. We saw that last week, but it's reinforced here again. Children cry out to him in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. And he doesn't stop them, doesn't correct them, even the authorities try and make him do that. Because he knows they're right. That's exactly who he is. He is God's chosen king, the one who will rule Israel and indeed the world. But he is more than just king. In verse 13 he says, My house shall be a house of prayer. Now it may simply be a quote on Jesus' list, but it sounds like he's saying, it doesn't, my house shall be a house of prayer. And we'll look at that in a couple of weeks' time when, we, when, we, when, 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 the, when the authorities come to Jesus and say, Hey, what authority are you doing this by? And then in the very next verse, in verse 14, Jesus heals the blind and the lame in the temple, which remember Isaiah said, what God would do when he comes to save his people. And then further down in verse 16, the praises God ordained for himself in Psalm 8 are ordained for him. Jesus is claiming here to be God. The chief priests, the scribes, they don't recognize the authority of Jesus. They reject him. But what about you? Will you see him as your king and your God? Or will you reject him like they did? And suffer God's judgment. 
Because God's judgment came on Israel, alright. The parable of the victory did come true. Israel's mountain metaphorically fell into the sea. There was a shadow in Israel's history of the judgment to come. In AD 70, the Romans came, they destroyed the temple, they destroyed the city, just like the Babylonians did 600 years before. But as we said earlier, that greater judgment, which the fig tree in the mountain points to, was, well, firstly the death of Jesus. Because on the cross he took the judgment of God for those who believe in him. And it's the final judgment, the end. When Jesus comes back to judge the world, and there's the end of creation. Judgment has come, the judgment will come. And unless we turn to him as our King and our God, unless we accept the the forgiveness that he bought through his judgment at the cross, then we will face our judgment at the end. So recognize who Jesus is, but treat him properly as King and God. And finally we learn about prayer. We need to pray in faith. We need to pray like Jesus, trusting the will of the Father. We need to pray for the kingdom. And as we do, God will hear our prayer and answer us. So let's pray together now. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he is indeed King and God. Thank you for what he did in the temple, what he did in the fig tree, those warnings of the judgment to come. And Father, we pray that you grant us to take those warnings. Lord, we pray that you will enable each of us to treat him properly as our King and our God to follow his example of faith and trust in prayer. To trust in his his death that takes away our sins. The judgment that fell on him in our place so that we don't have to face your condemnation at the end. Help us we pray to love him and to follow him. And we pray that none of us here will be people who reject him. We ask this Lord in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, let, let me quickly read to you from Revelation chapter 7.